Good morning, everybody. Great to see all of you this morning. My name's Eric, and as Darian mentioned, I'm new here. So if you're new here, then um, we share something in common. So our family just moved to the area just a little less than a month ago. So we're still getting our bearings and figuring out where everything is. I think we have it down where all the closest in and outs are, which is very important for us. We have four boys and something very significant has happened with our two oldest ones. They've graduated in and out, so now they have to have a double-double. So it's just a little bit more expensive for us. So we're in uh, our third week in a series that we're calling Not Like Us. We're looking at how the Bible describes the character of God, the being of God, who He is. And specifically, we're looking at what theologians call the incommunicable attributes of God. And that's the fancy way of saying the ways that He is not like us. And according to the Bible, in order for us to rightly understand ourselves and for us to rightly know God, relate to God, experience an intimate relationship with God, we have to have two things down. One are the ways that we are indeed like God. The way that God has created us in His image But on the other hand, we also have to balance that out with knowing the ways that we are not like God. Ways that He is utterly different than us. And only when we hold those two things together can we have a proper understanding of our humanity. What does it mean to be a human being? And to flourish as a human being? And what does it mean to know God? So, in one of his books, uh, Pastor Ray Orland says, There are two important questions every Christian must ask as well as everybody who's exploring Christianity, everybody who still might even be skeptical, but is interested to learn more. And these two questions that we might wrestle with are, where did you get your idea of God? And, how do you know? How can you be sure that you didn't just make it up? That's important, and these are challenging questions for all of us. Whether we've been Christians for a long time, or whether we're new to this idea of Christianity and we're checking it out and we're exploring Jesus. A common approach to God is to approach God kind of like a buffet. If you like your all-you-can-eat your, all buffets, you go and you select the things that you want based on your preferences. But isn't it most reasonable to think that if God exists, if God is really real, then God will be even better than we imagined him to be in some ways. He'll be more incredible, more beautiful, more wonderful, but at the same time, he'll be more challenging and difficult to us than we ever hoped. That Both those things would be true if there really is a God. And this is the kind of God the Bible describes. And so the thesis of this series, kind of introducing again this series, what we're doing here, we're looking at this idea that knowing God as he is described in the Bible, not as we would hope him to be, not as we would prefer him to be, is the only path toward being fully alive, fully human. And it's the only way that we can develop a deep connection, a living and genuine connection with God. So we've looked first at how God is unchanging. Last week we talked about how God is transcendent. This week we're going to look at how God is omniscient, and omnipresent. We're going to handle those together. In other words, that He is the all-knowing and everywhere God. And if you have 
your bulletin, we're going to look at three points here this morning. If it's helpful for you to follow along on page five, you'll see those three points. Number one, why is this important? Number two, the issue with an all-knowing and everywhere God. And thirdly, we're going to talk about some implications or applications of this idea, of this truth, if God is indeed all-knowing and everywhere. So if you flip back to your passage, or if you have your Bible open, you look at Psalm 139, and we didn't read the whole thing. We looked at the beginning, and we're going to look at the last two verses as well, kind of the bookends of this psalm. It has two basic points in verses 1 through 12. Verses 1 through 6, they show us that God knows everything. He is omniscient. And verses 7 through 12 describe how God is everywhere, that He is omnipresent. And so the way that the psalmist, this is David writing, he describes these things not from a removed, kind of doctrinal, systematic approach. He's describing these things in a very intimate way, in a very personal way, a very prayerful approach. These doctrines of omniscience and omnipresence are not just pie-in-the-sky, out-there doctrines. They're very personal. They can only be understood in a very intimate way. But also, the way that David describes these things, if you look at the contrast that he sets up, he takes this very personal application and he broadens it to a very universal scope. He says, God, you know when I sit and rise. You know when I go out and when I lie down. You know you go behind me, you go before me, whether I go or flee. If I'm in heaven, if I'm in Sheol or the underworld, you're there if I rise, if I settle down to the dawn, to the sea. You know me. You're there. And so the combined effect of all, all these is to build a picture of God's knowledge and presence that's deeply personal, but also it's universal. It's universal. That God knows everything there is to know about me, because he knows everything there is to know about everything. I can never hide from God. Because he's everywhere. Let's look at verses 1 through 6 more closely. Focus on how God is all-knowing. The key word in those six verses, if you look, is the word know. Verse 1. He's, the psalmist says, you have searched me and you have known me. Verse 2. You know when I sit down and rise up. Verse 4. Before I speak a word, you know it. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. God knows then everything that is, everything that was, and everything that will be. And he not only knows the specific details of all those things, he knows how they all fit together and how they relate to one another. And how all of those things are moving towards his ultimate purpose, his ultimate plan for all things. And David here focuses on how God knows the depths of our human thoughts, our human emotions, our actions, and our words, before we even think them, before we even do them. God knows these things. And his conclusion in verse 6 is, this is wonderful, this is beyond even my capacity to understand or comprehend. There's a story I read this week about Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton was the father of physics. Some people say he's like the father of modern science. Pretty smart guy. When he was an old man, someone said to him, Dr. Newton, you have this tremendous store of knowledge. And he responded to this person, I remind myself of a little boy walking along the seashore picking up seashells. The boy has a handful of seashells in his little hand. 
But all around him is the vast seashore stretching in all directions as far as the eye can see. He said, all that I know is simply a handful of seashells. But the vast universe of God is filled with knowledge I do not possess. Now I've been getting to know many of you as, as this church, as Trinity Church, and I know we have a lot of sharp people in this congregation. I don't know if you're Isaac Newton level. Maybe some of you are, but you're pretty close. So we, we pride ourselves. Many of us pride ourselves on our education, our knowledge, our skill set, our ability to solve problems. One of the hardest things for people like that, I'll put myself in that category, one of the hardest things for us to say, those three little words, I don't know. For some of us, it's like, we can't even say it. We can't get the words out. And Amelia can tell you in our marriage, I think it took about six years for me to say those words, I don't know, to her. So I confess, I have this problem. Here's a test. How do you feel when someone in your area of expertise, maybe it's the area you probably, maybe it's a hobby, or maybe it's your career, what you do for work, maybe it's theology, or medicine, or law, or education, whatever those things are. If you meet somebody, and you sense, I think this person knows a little bit more than me in this area. And then they start dropping knowledge, start saying things, and you're like, ah, oh, I didn't know that. How, how do you feel? How do you respond? If we're honest, I think we're a little bit threatened. We want to show off. Now, I can, I can keep up with that. I knew that. We don't ever want to say the words, I didn't know that. Now, I don't know. The truth is, the one thing that we might be experts on, Psalm 139 says, ourselves, we don't even know ourselves fully. And the reality of an all-knowing God would humble us to say, we don't know. But also, it should make us hungry. Hungry to learn from this God. Hungry to find out what do I need to learn about myself? What do I need to learn about this vast sum of knowledge that I know nothing about? So it should make us humble and hungry at the same time. Psalm 139 says, Only when we can say those words, Your knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Do we open up the possibility of truly knowing ourselves and really and deeply and personally knowing God? So that's verses 1 through 6. Let's look at verses 7 through 12. They focus on God's everywhere presence. David basically says, There is nowhere I can hide from you. If I go up to the highest heavens, you're there. If I go down to Sheol, the ancient Near Eastern understanding of the underworld, you're there on the edges of the horizon, even in the darkest points, in the darkest places of our lives, God is present. So last week we looked at how God is transcendent, that He is above, He is beyond, He is distinct from us. This psalm is saying here, at the same time, without contradiction and maybe somewhat paradoxically, God is also imminent and present. He is near. He is close. He is always with us. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is in Athens and he's talking to all the leading philosophers of the day that are gathered there, sharing all the latest ideas. And he's looking for a place to begin to explain the gospel. And there, as he begins and lays this foundation to have this conversation about Jesus with people who have never heard of him, 
He begins by affirming two key ideas that their thinkers, that their poets had about God. He says, I've seen that you have an altar to the unknown God. That's transcendence. There was this sense that as much as they'd come up with their pantheon of deities, there was a God they didn't know. There was a God they could never describe. God was an unknown God. And then he says in, in chapter 17, verse 28, he says, He's also the God who is near and everywhere. Some of your poets have said, In Him we live. In Him we move and have our being. So Paul is saying, here's where I want to start with you. This idea of the presence of God, the everywhere presence of God, is an inescapable reality of human experience. We can't quite name it. We can't quite describe it. But we know someone is there. Someone beyond us. Here David says God's everywhere presence is not just that he's there. Kind of in a vague sense, he's just out there being. Verse 10, if you look at verse 10 with me, it says he's there to lead us. And he's there to hold us. That verb lead is the Hebrew word that's used for God leading his people out of dangers, leading his people out of snares to safety. And the word hold could be translated seize or grasp, that God will never let go of his people. So two quick applications of God's omnipresence here. One, he is with us through it all and everywhere. The psalmist there at the end in verses 10 and 11 is very specific. He says, God is with me in my darkest points in my life, in my darkest places in my life. And it's so hard for us sometimes to believe that. So hard for us sometimes to experience that. But Psalm 139 tells us it is always true. God is near. God is close to the brokenhearted. No matter how dark it gets, he will never let go. Another application, if God is everywhere, God is all-knowing, then we can say of ourselves, we are not like him, we can't do it all, and we can't be everywhere. So unlike God, we can only be in one place at a time. But we, in our modern world, we live with our devices, we live with our technology, we live in the in information age. So we're really addicted <laughs> to multitasking. We want to be doing more than one thing at once, being more than one place at once. And we can so easily become so busy, so overcommitted, that our lives become so overwhelming that we're not fully present to whatever God has before us. We can feel overwhelmed, that we have no margin in our lives. We have to ask ourselves, have we forgotten about these truths about God? Are we transgressing our God-given limits in our humanity? Am I trying to be in more than one place at a time? Since we can only be in one place at one time, we're, we're set free then, if we can embrace this and apply this doctrine, to really inhabit and be at the place where God has us. So we're free to be great neighbors, great co-workers, great citizens of our communities. They're really believing this idea that God is everywhere, all-knowing God, is what frees us up to be the best neighbors, to be present to the people that God has in our lives. So like I said, we live in this globalized information age. So 24-7, we're being hit with all kinds of information all the time. And it can either cause us to shut down and be like, I can't handle this, just forget it. Or it can kind of overwhelm us 
and fill us with the sense of, do I need to get on social media and respond to this immediately and share my opinion? Do I need to live in kind of a fear of all that I'm hearing, all that's going around in our culture and in the world? For most of the stuff that's going on outside of the network of relationships that God has placed in our lives, of the place that God has put us, this doctrine says, for most of it, we can just leave it to God. We can just let it go. There's a sign on the border of Tustin. So I, I live in Tustin. That's where we live. And the church office is right there between Tustin and Santa Ana. So every time I'm driving out on um, Irvine Boulevard, I pass this sign. And so on one side it says, Welcome to Tustin. But as you're leaving, it says this. It says, Work where you must, but live and shop in Tustin. I don't know if you've ever seen that. <laughs> I'm looking at that and going, It's not like a catchy marketing phrase. <laughs> like... Let's be local. Let's support our community. It's like a command. It's very intense. I don't know if this is the ethos of the Tustin community, but I'm, I'm a little scared of what's going to happen if I shop in Orange. <laughs> Somebody from Tustin is going to hunt me down. There's this trend, right, of going local. Let's go local. Let's be handcrafted. That's cool. And that's hip. But theologically, this is all a part of how God has made us to live within our limits. There's absolute validity to respond to the global needs of our world. We've been given so much. Stewardship demands that we think about that. But God alone is aware of everything. God alone is everywhere present. So we can be free to let Him worry about changing the world. And we can be free to be present. To love the people that He has put into our lives. And to inhabit the places where God has put us. So Psalm 139 shows us these are very important truths about God. But there is an issue, point two, with the reality of an all-knowing and everywhere God. On the one hand, Psalm 139 is so poetic. You're reading it. It's very almost flowery. We didn't read all of the passage there, but even as it goes on, it uses words like wonderful or precious. And so Psalm 139 Okay, as a part of my research, I did go on Pinterest, and I'm going to catch some flack for this, but I was just searching Psalm 139, and there's a whole market for picture frames and arts and crafts, all based on Psalm 139, what we read. There was even this t-shirt that I saw with a lot of the, verse of one, a lot of the verses of 139 printed out, and there was a guy wearing this t-shirt. I have to say, I will never wear a t-shirt like that. It's just too cheesy for me. But that's the feeling. It's a comforting psalm, right? We get the sense that God is present. God knows everything about me. There's comfort there. But there is another side to this reality of an all-knowing and everywhere God. Yesterday, we were getting settled into our routine. We've just been here for about three and a half weeks. So we were finally able to do every parent's and every kid's favorite part of the week, which is Saturday chores. So fun. Our kids love Saturday chores. And their favorite part about it probably is we'll have them clean a bathroom or we'll have them clean their bedroom and then we'll say, okay, are you ready for inspection? And they'll say, no, <laughs> because they know what's coming. We have a different level of, of standard of cleanliness than they, than they do. So when we show up to the bathroom or to their bedroom, they know that we're going to say, you forgot about that. You didn't do that. 
And so they dread the inspection. God knows all our thoughts, all our words, all our actions, and God does a thorough inspection of all these things. Instead of comforting, that can be a little unsettling. That can be a little bit unnerving because none of us feel that comfortable being that exposed, right? We live in the age of reality TV and so many people have their own reality TV show, but all of us know that reality TV is edited. It goes in the cutting floor and they just edit it all out and it's not really reality TV. But what if it was? The unedited reality TV of myself. Would any of us want that displayed out there on network TV or for anyone to see? That's not something that we'd want showing. The scriptures say that the normal human instinct to this idea of an all-knowing, everywhere God is to hide. And it started in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve stepped out of the rule of God and sin entered into the world, and all of a sudden they felt this distance. All of a sudden they felt this shame. All of a sudden they felt this impulse to hide. And what used to be their great joy now became the thing that they were terrified of, God's presence. And so God draws near to them and he says, where are you? And Adam says, we were afraid. And so we hid. They covered themselves. They tried to hide from God's revealing presence. But God seeks them out. And this is, this is our story. This is the story of us all. How we respond to the sense of God's all-knowing and everywhere presence in our lives. There are things about ourselves we don't want anyone to know that we don't want to deal with, and so we hide. But in Psalm 139, David doesn't run. David doesn't hide from God's all-searching and all-knowing presence in his life. He isn't trying to hide. Instead, he's inviting this presence. He's inviting God to search him and to know him. Why? How? How do we overcome the instinct to hide? Well, it's only possible if you believe that no matter what God sees about you, no matter how deeply God knows you, that He loves you still. Only if we believe that will we say, God, search me. God, I invite you. See it all. I'm an open book. If this is really true, if God knows everything there is to know about us and He loves us still, that can radically change our relationship with God and everything we know and believe even about ourselves. And the Gospel says, it is true because of Jesus. He died for us to forgive our sins, to remove our sin and our guilt and our shame, and He lived the perfect life for us so that our acceptance with God is not based on anything we are or anything we do, but it's based on His perfect righteousness, His beautiful life in the place of ours. He passed the, pres the, the test. He passed the test of the presence of God on our behalf. And one of the deepest fears, one of the strongest forces that shapes our lives is the fear of being known for who we are and being rejected. If all our junk, if all our brokenness was out there, who would accept me? Who would want to be my friend? Who would love me? The Gospel says that God knows us fully. Everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And He loves us with an unchanging 
and unbreakable love because of Jesus. Our identity, our self-image is grounded in that. And just to share personally for a moment, at a key time in my life when I was really struggling with this, I was struggling to believe this about myself, God brought a very important mentor into my life, a pastor named Scotty Smith. And what he said, and maybe you've heard it before, it's fairly simple, but what he said completely and radically altered really the trajectory of how I thought about God and how I related to God. He said, here's the reality. Some of us are so weighed down. Some of us are so focused, zeroed in and obsessed of the ways that we fall short of our sin, of our struggle, of our brokenness. But the reality is, according to the scriptures, we probably know 1% of our sin and of our brokenness. And maybe that's being generous. And God knows the other 99%. And he still loves us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So why are we so weighed down? Why are we so obsessed with the 1%? When God says, I know about that 1%. I know about the 100%. That's why I came. And that's why I came to make you mine. That should be so freeing. That should lift the burden of our souls. Because even more than that, not only does God know about it all, not only did he come knowing past, present, future, all our sin, all of our brokenness, But it doesn't drive him away from us. It actually draws him closer to us. He draws near. He draws close to us even at our worst. David says in verses 11 and 12, Surely the darkness will cover me. The light about me will be night. The darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. And David is saying God does not abandon us in our darkness. He draws near to us. He draws near to us in our darkness in order to transform it by the light of his presence. So Psalm 139 says this is a very important truth. Psalm 139 helps us resolve the issue with an all-knowing and everywhere God. There are also some implications here that I want to talk about as we close. Because when we believe these things about God, When we see how the issue is resolved in the gospel, it can bring a new depth, a new reality, a new power to our relationship with God and how we experience Him. Two implications. One, we become free from the pressure of perfectionism. And two, we become free from the need to pretend. So first, let's talk about freedom from the pressure of perfectionism. Many of us live under this constant pressure of perfectionism. Maybe we got it from our parents. Maybe it's just within us. We kind of have this tape recorder going deep in our hearts and in our minds saying, that's not good enough. That's not enough. You need to do more. You need to try harder. I know I struggle with this. Psalm 139 shows us that our perfectionism can just be another way of hiding. We're hiding behind our goodness. We're hiding behind our attempts to be right. We need to realize all the ways that we take that perfectionism into our relationship with God. Because as we said, God knows our struggles. God knows our shortcomings. He knows our sins. The 1% we're aware of and the 99% we don't even know. So instead of hiding these, 
Instead of trying to work harder and harder, we need to replace that message that's saying, it's not enough. You need to do better. You're not good enough. With the message of Psalm 139, that God says, I know it all, and I love you. We might have to say that out loud to ourselves if we struggle with perfectionism so much. God says to me, I know it all, and I love you. Lastly, freedom from pretending. As we talked about earlier, one of the most powerful and profound forces that frees us to be who we are is when we stop hiding. And we're free to be known as who we are and we experience the love of God in that. Yet when I talk to, to people, when I look at my own story, I find as Christians that we're still so characterized by this impulse to perform or pretend or to wear masks, to act how we think we should act, to say what we think we should say. And this doctrine of an all-knowing and everywhere God should lead Christians, should lead churches to be the most honest people and places on the planet. So whatever we do, whatever we've done, whatever we're thinking, whatever we're doubting and struggling, wherever we are, whatever relationships we have in our lives that are strained, God knows it all. He knows it. So why hide it? There's no use in hiding. And I think Psalm 139 shows us how this can begin. It starts with very raw and very honest prayer. That it, it is in relationship with God as we are praying that we learn to take off the masks that we wear. Because if we are secure in His unchanging and affirming love for us, as we are, we can learn to be ourselves and we can learn to accept others as they are. P.T. Forsyth, an author, says this about prayer. He says, prayer, true prayer, does not allow us to deceive ourselves. It relaxes the tension of our self-inflation. It produces clearness of spiritual vision. It saps our self-deception and its pharisaism. So by prayer, we acquire our true selves. For some of us, I think this might be the place where we need to reconstruct our entire view of God. I've been getting to know many of you and in my pastoral experience, a lot of us carry around kind of this low-level guilt about our prayer lives, about our quiet times or our devotions. We say, I'm not doing enough. I should do better. And we kind of just always get on that treadmill of it's never enough, I'm not doing enough, I should do more. And we just carry that around with us in our experience. And so our relationship with God is clouded by guilt. Now imagine this. You're at your house, and you're sitting on your couch watching TV, and you get a knock at the door, and you look outside, and you realize it's the police. There's like three or four squad cars out there. Okay, what's happening? Now, one scenario one is you open the door, and the police say, we have received notice that there is some suspicious illegal activity happening in this home, and we are going to do a thorough search. How would you feel? I would probably be going, okay, well, what's out there? What have I done? What's happening? All, all of a sudden being very fearful. What are they going to find out? How did this happen? What's going on? Imagine scenario two. You get the same situation happening. The police knock on your door. All these squad car cars are out there. You open it up and they say, we have received information that there's something very harmful in your house. We are here to search it out until we find it and to make sure that you're safe. Two very different searches. The very end of Psalm 
139 gives us a prayer. Verses 23 and 24. If you look at 23 again. David says, God wants to redirect our lives away from what is grievous. Another way to translate that is painful. What brings pain into our lives, into the everlasting ways. God doesn't search us in order to condemn us or crush us. God searches our lives in order to convict us and to conform us into the people He's making us in the image of Christ. So what if we said, what if we thought, that the invitation to spend time with God in prayer, the invitation to have God search us and know us, what if it was not to focus on our sin, but every time that we would come away being affirmed, we would come away being radically affirmed, we would come away maybe being challenged, but knowing that in every place and in every way that we were challenged, it was for our good, to keep us away from pain, and to keep us away from grief. Wouldn't that transform the way that we saw prayer? Wouldn't that transform the way that we approach God? So in closing, verses 23 and 24, there's a, a classical spiritual discipline called the prayer of examine. The prayer of examine is something that people practice every day. It's a, it's a practice, a prayer practice to integrate our daily lives with the presence of God. And it's twofold. One, the purpose is to regularly remember God is with me, His presence. And two, to ask God to examine and to lead me and to re redirect us into His everlasting way. This week, let's do a church-wide experiment. Maybe every day, maybe one time this week, would you just pray the words of Psalm 23? And Psalm 24. Would you pray these words? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. And as we do that, may we experience afresh the truth of the gospel. That despite our brokenness, we are loved. We are fully known and we are fully loved in Jesus. Let's pray.